podcast and happy rather late summer. It has been quite a while since our last episode and I sincerely apologize. I had this whole plan to give you a new episode each week, but that first year definitely took it out of me. So let's catch up. Finals month was crazy. I honestly have no idea how I survived. It was definitely a rush to the finish line and just my luck, I found out that I have a food allergy the same day that a paper was due. Thankfully, my professor was kind enough to give me an extension, especially with the whole situation sounding like absolutely, like absolute, complete bullshit. Um, I frantically emailed her like after I started having the reaction and it, I didn't even know what I was allergic to and it was, it was awful, but now I know. So yeah, that's good. I know now, (laughs) but if anything, This whole fiasco has taught me to have empathy for students during finals week as I gear up to become a professor for the fall. Um, Speaking of being a professor (laughs) and just like the program in general, I have also been studying nonstop for my comp exam, which is like this big exam where we have to know 360 images by heart and basically write out like a mini lecture. So about a paragraph if we were to be giving this to students and Yeah, it's a lot. And this is all while I am finishing up my syllabus for the fall and gearing up, like I said, to be a professor. So that is why the podcast took a pause for a bit. But I am definitely hoping to recenter and give you the quality episodes that you deserve. Uh, Before the start of my fall semester, I'm going to try my best to release a new episode every week. And I'll also be recording mini episodes for patrons. These will be deeper discussions of artists that we've already covered. Like I've said in the past, I don't want to penalize anyone who can't be a patron for whatever reason. So I will never, never, never make a patron episode of an artist that we haven't already talked about. Um, Oh, and if you remember last time, all the way back in April, we are now available everywhere. So share this with your friends who love art and let them know that we're on all podcasting platforms now and we're growing and it's going to be a great day in the neighborhood. Uh, New merch is on the way. I was designing some notebooks, but the quality of the notebook itself was not to the standard that I would have liked. So that's been scrapped. Like I said, I never want to sell you something that I don't personally like myself. If I'm not going to use it, why the hell would I sell it to you? Um, But... In the past, I know I have mentioned my obsession for water bottles and cups. Um, So a water bottle is in the works and I'm really excited because it's gonna be a different design than the logo that is currently on the merch. And all while I'm doing this, I am hoping to have some fall designs out. I'm thinking a hoodie, maybe a sweater, and um, I already have a beanie designed. So that's pretty cool too. Uh, all right. It is time for patron shout outs. Thank you, Caitlin, for continuing to be an amazing patron and supporting the development of Artwatch. Your support has helped Artwatch get the website up and running and get published on each podcasting platform. And most recently has helped me become a passion planner ambassador. So you'll probably hear an ad for that later in this episode. Um, For all my other wonderful listeners, would you like to become a patron? If so, there are many of different perks and different levels that you can join, even as low as $3 a month. Each level has a different benefit that can include shout outs, discounts on merch, exclusive content such as close friends on Instagram and patron episodes. And on the two upper levels, you can get actual merch. Um, So head over to patreon.com slash artwatchpodcast and join and become a patron. I'm also hoping to have um, a buy me a coffee soon. So if for whatever reason you just don't want to become a patron because it's a monthly commitment, then every now and then you can just, I don't know, throw me, throw me a buy me a coffee thing. And that would be wonderful. Anything helps. And I sincerely appreciate all of the support that all of my listeners give me, whether that's just listening to episodes, liking my posts on Instagram, following me on Twitter, 
Um, and even just download, just downloading the episodes that, that supports me so much. And if you love the podcast, whatever platform you listen on, if you could just give me a review, I know that, um, Apple podcasts, they give you like an option to do like the five stars or write a review. If you would do that, that would really, really help me out. And I would greatly appreciate it. Um, but in any case, let's move on to today's topic, Axis Mundo. Initially, I was planning on making this a single episode, but I definitely underestimated the extra time I would need to talk about such a large exhibition. So next week, we'll probably cover most of the artists, whereas today I'm going to lay the groundwork for the exhibition and the artist that is considered the focal point. So, the exhibition. Access Mundo, Queer Chicano Net- Queer Networks in Chicano, LA. Um, the exhibition was organized by one National Gay and Lesbian Archives at USC Libraries. I'm not sure if that's O-N-E or one, it's all caps. And I know that uh, everybody has different pronunciations of acronyms. Anyway, the exhibition details the intersections and collaborations within the cheer, the cheer, the queer Chicano community of Los Angeles from the 1960s to the 1990s. Um, the reason why I'm using the term Chicano or Chicana is uh, because at this point in history, Chicanex, which is the gender neutral form, had not yet been developed. Uh, Chicanex was developed recently by younger generations to push back against gendered words in the Spanish language, which is why you also have Latinx. Uh, so it, it varies by region, but Chicano Chicana refers specifically to Mexican Americans. Um, yes. So the exhibition's title is a reference to the Los Angeles-based artist Edmundo or Mundo Mesa. Mesa was born in Tijuana and raised in Los Angeles, where he collaborated with many Chicano artists, including Gronk and Robert Lego- Legoreta. Curators Cio Dean Chavoya and David Evans France wrote that Mundo became the conceptual conceptual axis for the exhibition. The time frame that the exhibition covered was filled with tumultuous and inspiring political activism around identity and social justice, including the emergence of the Chicano civil rights movement, feminist movement, and gay rights movement. Gay rights especially became poignant as the AIDS epidemic created a stigma around gay men that has lasted even today. One example of this is that in the United States, gay men could not donate blood unless they had abstained from sex for around one year, but because of the COVID pandemic, it was shortened to only three months. Uh, Now that's pretty crappy if you ask me. And this varies by each country, so the regulations the U.S. have are going to vary between what's in European countries, Latin American countries, literally everywhere else. And AIDS is an important topic for this exhibition because Mesa died of complications from AIDS in 1985. And until the research for this exhibition, most of his works were relegated to the archives despite his rather successful career. I mean, he was still like at the beginning of his career when uh, he was diagnosed with AIDS and of course died from complications. So the artists within Axis Mundo sought to raise consciousness, experiment with new forms of media, connect with other like-minded producers, often through mail, play with self-styling and costuming, make music in new and novel ways, and show their work in unexpected locations. Now that's a quote pulled directly from the catalog. But most importantly, Axis Mundo was the first historical exhibition ever mounted on LGBTQ Chicano Chicana or even Latina Latino artists. In addition to the exhibition taking its name from Mundo Mesa, Mundo also refers to different worlds in which to, to the different worlds in which Chicanos connected and created through their art, performance, and activism that pushed back against social rep, re, social repression, cultivated spaces of shared intimacy, and within various cultural contexts and queerly refashioned hegemonic culture. Ideally, these artists were creating counterpublics. Uh, I lost my spot. Counter publics that were intended to be intersectional. The introductory curatorial essay sets up a few subsections that served as the overarching themes of the exhibition, 
as well as the goals of Chicano artists that the exhibition covers. All right, so the catalog's intro essay sets up, like I said, a few different subsections that served as the overarching themes of the exhibition. The first theme was let them know we exist. This mainly refers to bringing attention to the queer Chicano community as well as Chicano feminist groups. Activist groups such as the Greater Liberated Chicanos or GLC and Las Hermanas among other collectives as well as individual artists um, that shared similar values of providing support for queer Chicanos and women as well. This group, or these groups often experienced overlapping struggles within the, within the larger Chicano community, and sometimes the groups would work together to fight for each other's rights. So this is in part what the title of the, or, yeah, the title of the exhibition refers to when they talk about queer Chicano networks. So they're interacting with each other, they're working together, sometimes disagreeing with each other, but all in the spirit of pushing forward or pushing the queer Chicano forward into the conversation. So the second theme was to create queer synergy. Chavoya and France overview the sparse Chicano exhibitions of the period, performances and print culture that emerged in an effort to create a sense of Chicano identity in Los Angeles, but also to form a queer Chicano identity with, within the Chicano community. So like I said before, um, the Chicano, the queer Chicano community was somewhat overshadowed by the, the larger, rather heteronormative idea of, of what, what it meant to be Chicano. And of course, like, being a queer person of color, you have different intersections of, you know, like, lack of privilege, I, I think is a great, is the better way to say it. So I don't know if you've ever heard, but like, there's, man, I saw a good explanation of it a couple months ago where, where, that it broke down where they talk about how as a white male or a straight white male, you have, you know, you're pretty much very privileged. And then as you go down to like non-white, non-white males who are also straight, they're only like notch from being equal is that they're not white. But then you have, you also have straight white women who they're still very privileged but they're not as privileged as a straight white male but then it becomes like even more down or they also yeah it becomes even more like less privileged sorry it becomes less privileged as like you're a like say you're a straight woman of color like they still have privilege being straight but they also don't have the privilege of being a straight white female and they also don't have the same privilege of being a straight white male so it's like this zigzag sort of where you're at as far as like being seen in the, in the general world socio-political sphere however you want to put it but then when you add in different identities such as like being a queer man like a queer white man so like you still have the same privileges as white men but you're not as privileged because you are queer and then it again goes down so like then you have the queer black male and then queer white female, and then queer non-white females. <laughs> and it, it keeps going down. So like, obviously it's just, it's not just black men that are queer, obviously. Um, so it, there's different, yeah. I wish I could find that, I think it was like an Instagram TV or something. They broke it down really wonderf wonderfully for people who aren't familiar with the struggles of not just like the queer community, but queer community of color. Um, and that's sort of what this is, what the queer synergy is talking about is like creating that like community together and like pushing yourself forward or pushing themselves forward to be talked about as to, uh, and to be considered part of the Chicano community. Like it's not just the, the hetero Chicano community, it's the queer Chicano community too. We're all under one umbrella. Um, and then the third theme was schools and education. So if you aren't familiar with the education in Los Angeles at this point, um, there was a clear um, rift between wealthy communities, which are predominantly white, and non-wealthy communities, which are predominantly people of color. And they obviously were not, they, the, the non-white communities did not have the same advantages as white communities because their funding was less, 
Um, they're typically being surveyed by surveilled by the police. And then within the larger Chicano movement, you had high schoolers who were protesting various wrongs, including the Vietnam War, and they would do school walkouts, and then police would come and arrest the minors, like actual minors, and then also beat them. Um, so there was a lot of like struggle within this in general. And then you have the schools and education theme for the exhibition, which is creating art programs, both public and from universities. And they played a pivotal role in the works produced by many of these artists present in the exhibition. Um, so of course there's, I believe it's called self help graphics and design. It was like an, it started out as like a, a community outreach for the Chicano community to get kids involved in art as sort of like an after school activity. And then of course, like there are, it's more complicated than that and it has a richer history than what I just um, presented, but it's that general idea of community outreach. And then you have the added layer of these artists who are cre carving out a queer art education for themselves as well as for other people like them. And for those who were privileged enough to attend the college classes, um, they were able to make lasting connections and they would frequently collaborate with one another. Um, and even if it was just they took like a few college classes here and there, um, you know, you're still, you're still making those connections. It's the same way that we think about college as networking in general. It's, it's the same thing that's going on here, but it's very like specific to the queer Chicano community. Then the fourth theme was just creating the space, which sort of overlaps with some of the other ones. Um, because the Chicano community was struggling to be represented in the mainstream art scene and media, they had to carve out their own spaces for from exhi ex blah, 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 for exhibition from exhibition venues to zines. Um, these sites allow Chicano creatives to have conversations about rights, identity, and culture through different platforms. And although they did not always agree, having a voice was the most important part of these endeavors. So it was even more difficult for queer Chicano members to push their voice forward. Um, again, just the time period being, if you're queer, you're not accepted. And yeah, so making the space, not just for the Chicano community, but for the cheer, for the queer Chicano community. I keep saying cheer, uh, I don't know, tongue twisters. And then the fifth was role models. So. The curators believed that the artists presented in the exhibition form a sort of genealogy of experimental Chicano and Chicana artists and the different trends within each period. And of course, because they are like mentoring each other, it's like a sort of track or tracing between like, like they said, the styles and then the different movements themselves. Um, so yes, so like role models itself is just I feel like that's pretty self-explanatory. You're able to look up to to an older generation or an older person um, and understand that you can still make something of yourself even though larger society doesn't accept you. It's obviously gonna be difficult, but you can still do it. And then the sixth, th the sixth theme was the AIDS afterlifes. So many of the artists in the exhibition died from complications from AIDS which caused most of their work to be underrepresented in scholarship, but their memories were preserved through archival materials, which is sort of how this exhibition came to life. The curators wrote that the exhibition combined curatorial and scholarly methods to utilize the archives as a, as a site of historical research and creative potential. Some of the Chicano artists that are remembered in this exhibition are Carlos Almaraz, 1941 to 1989, Stephen Arnold, 1943 to 94, Tosh Carillo, 1941 to 1983, Mundo Mesa, 1955 to 1985, Ray Navarro, 1964 to 1960, Richard Niebles, uh, 1950 to 1994, Teddy Sandoval, 1949 to 1995, Jack Smith, uh, 32 to 89, Jack Vargas, 52 to 95, uh, Gerardo Velasquez, 58 to 92. And additionally, artist Jerry 
1997, Tomata du Plenty, 1948 to 2000, and Ricardo Valverde, 1946 to 1998. So as you just heard, that is a lot of artists to be impacted by AIDS, especially within such a small community and to die from complications from it. Um, of course, there are other artists in this exhibition who are still living and still practicing, which is fantastic. Um, and the members of ASCO being some of them, um, which I will talk about later. But I'm going to take a quick break and we're going to do a quick little ad. Hey there, all my art watchers. I have mentioned so many times in the podcast how much I love to plan, color code my planner, and of course, my love for passion planner. Well, that love paid off because I am now a passion planner ambassador, which means you can get a discount on all of passion planners, wonderful products. Whether you need planning or a planning expert, passion planner has got you covered. One thing I love most about the passion planner is that it's somewhat guided at the beginning of each planner. They have what's called a passion roadmap where you make a wish list and you break down all of your long-term goals. The planner is designed to help you reach those goals. And at the end of each month, there's a check-in where you review your progress. Being a student at any level is hard, and then when you throw in all the stressors of life into the mix, things can get pretty hectic. So head over to passionplanner.com and use the code VICTORIAN10 at checkout for 10% off of your entire purchase. That's V-I-C-T-O-R-I-A-N-1-0. Again, that's V-I-C-T-O-R-I-A-N-1-0. Happy planning! And we're back to discuss the art. While there are many incredible artists in the show, I obviously cannot cover every single work. So I'll talk about three or four works from different artists. And I just want you to know that it's not mean. I am favoring one over the other. Um, sometimes there's just more research on artists online. And since, of course, we're still in a pandemic, um, my own research access is quite limited. Um, and if you're a student, you, you probably know this from doing your research papers during the semester. So, um, yeah, not favoring one artist over the other. It's just what I'm able to find on a select few. And like I said earlier, this episode is only going to cover the works of Mundo Mesa. Um, I actually had the privilege of seeing this show during spring of 2019 at Lawndale Art Center. It was a traveling show, and I believe it started at MoCA, um, Los Angeles in the fall of 2015 um and it traveled to a couple other places i should have written this down but like i said i was able to see the one at, in houston so at lawndale art center which is a really nice facility by the way um i had never been there until this show which is sad considering i live in houston anyway <laughs> Mundo Mesa, since he inspired the name of the exhibition and was the initial starting point for the curator's research it only seems fitting that i start with his works but a little bit more about the artist um this next quote comes from a book review of the exhibition catalog by catherine s ramirez so beginning the quote a painter by training he was also a costume designer and makeup artist who collaborated on performances with chicano artists gronk and robert cyclona legoreta he modeled for Anthony Friedkin and Stephen Arnold, two of the most prominent chroniclers of 20th century urban gay culture in the United States. With his lover and friend, Simon or Simone Dunan, um, Mesa curated provocative window displays at Maxfield Blue, a Tony fashion boutique in West Hollywood, and made a cameo appearance in the video for Kim Carnes' 1981 hit single, Betty Davis Eyes. In addition to linking LA's east side and west side with their distinct geographic, demographic, and socioeconomic poles, Mesa straddled multiple scenes, movements, and worlds. He embodied and enacted intersectionality years before feminist scholars of color would coin and ponder that term, end quote. So that is a pretty powerful closing statement by her about um, Mesa, especially since I'm sure in your art history classes, maybe the seminar ones more so. Hopefully you've talked about what intersectionality is. I know I kind of talked about it earlier, but um, just for a refresher, intersectionality is when, so like, like I said earlier, so there's the straight white male who has all the privilege that he could possibly ask for. Um, but then when you are a male of color, you don't have as 
many privileges, but you still have more privileges than a lot of women. Maybe not white women, but that's beside the point. Um, and then you have white straight women, right, who have lots of privilege. But then it continues to become more complicated as identities um, themselves are more complicated because I'm sure you've heard the, ter the phrase, sexuality is a spectrum, um, just like gender is a spectrum. And um, so when you have all these different, I, I don't want to say barriers, but that's the only thing I can think of at the moment. So if you are a queer woman of color or maybe even a transgender person of color, it becomes a little bit more complicated. So you're facing all these different barriers just to see, be seen as equal to the straight white male. That is kind of just a very, very simplified idea of what intersectionality is. And it, think of it like, like a spider web almost. Yeah. You have all these like little interweavings um, just to be equal. And anyway, back to Mesa. He played a pivotal role in the emergence of Chicano conceptualists. So that is going to be the work of like Asco. I know I mentioned them before. And again, some of the other artists that we've talked about, I believed Robert Legoreta. They worked, yeah. Lots of conceptualist artists. Um, which is super important for the Chicano movement in general. I know I'm going off on a side tangent here. But conceptualism as far as like, or conceptualist art in the museum greater sphere was something that was categorized as something that the genius white male artist could do. And so when you have artists of color, in this case, Chicano artists, who are saying, no, we can do that too. And Fuck you to the museum world for saying that ours is not as good as theirs just because we are Chicano. So, yeah, so it's it's definitely, like, not only is it a political statement, it is also a art world statement. Um, very, very important. And we could talk about conceptual Chicano conceptual art in a later episode and even other Latin American artists because that's what the podcast is about. Um, but back again, back to Mesa after my crazy tangent there for a minute. Um, so the works. Um, there's an essay called Between Action and Abstraction by Joshua Javier Guzman, and he examines the shift in Mesa's work after his AIDS diagnosis. Mesa began to work in abstraction with the black and white palette and with, uh, with the black and white palette and shapes that Guzman calls reminiscent of cubism. The essay covers the U.S. government's failure to properly respond to the AIDS epidemic and the many artists' activist responses to the crisis. Um, so I think it's only fitting if I start with some of his earlier works that are in color and just kind of like go from there. It's always good to start early and then go later. But one thing I want to avoid is, and I'm not, I, I don't want to be like, oh man, Guzman essay sucks. That's not what I'm saying at all please don't take that away from us um but there is this tendency with art historians just historians in general and then curators to look so closely at the work that you're adding all of this information backstory that might not actually be there so while guzman is proposing that his work shifted because of his aids diagnosis and it might have played a role it m might also not have been the only reason why he was shifting his work because nobody questions why picasso shifts his work all the time he has like 50 periods like i don't know dude does a shitload of art and same with diego rivera like nobody questions why he like changes from like very academic work and then going to cubism because he wants to be like picasso and then going to like muralism and then all these other things and like hyper sexualizing the indigenous woman but that's beside the point and it's another episode so yeah i whether it's in your own scholarship or even me talking about this, just kind of be aware that you don't want to add something that might not be there. Although he had a lot of proof, so anyway. Let me go to the art. So I'm going to jump back for just a second. Well, more like a couple minutes. But anyway, <laughs> I know I began the, um, the section on Mesa with the essay by Guzman, but I think it's also important to, to talk about 
one of the earlier essays within the catalog, David Evans Rance. It's called Chicano Chic, Fashion, Costume, Play. And this not only tracks just the performance art that's in that was in the Chicano movement, like the earlier Chicano movement, but the fact that Mesa was involved in a lot of this. And this was still during his, I guess, earlier period in his, in his career. And there was a lot of drag. There was a lot of, like, obviously, like, window displays because... Um, it was, yeah. And he he worked with not just Chicano artists, but British artists, which is part of the reason why in, you'll, if you have a chance to look at the catalog, then you'll see that one of the uh, blurbs is that they traveled so many archives within Mexico, obviously Los Angeles, Spain, and London. He's working with a lot of, a lot of different groups of people and that's again going back to the idea of it's a queer network it's not just like these individual acts individual artists operating alone they're working together whether it's loosely or directly and in this case with Mesa it's directly with other artists and there is this image within the essay it's if you have it if you have it it's on page 73 and it is a photo of Mundo Mesa and Jeff Jerique dressed as drag queens from outer space, which is kind of cool. So there is lots of stuff happening here. And this was taken in 82. So actually, it's probably like later in his career. Maybe it was printed. I don't know. But yes, so there's lots of interweavings of different different styles and different types of media that Mesa is working with. So, and here's why I'm bringing it back to Guzman, is he's talking specifically about painting and how his palette shifts to um, black and white, but Mesa is, Mesa is still operating in many different forms of art. So it's not just painting. He's doing performance. He's doing drag which is kind of a performance yeah it is a performance anyway um within the the friends essay he talks also about the psychedelic portion of not just chicano art but just arts in general because in the 70s and oh, 60s and 70s um psychedelics became like an interesting way to add to art so if you're i'm sure you know of the beatles i mean i don't particularly like them which i know is a very controversial claim but a lot of their cover art is very much in line with psychedelics but it's blended with art nouveau again i yeah that's a that is way off topic but there this is happening with so many different groups of artists it's not just isolated to like the genius white male artist um so there's lots there's lots happening and there's obviously print culture, zines, all sorts of stuff. There are some works of Mesa's that actually look at, or they're, sorry, they're paintings, acrylic on canvas, that look to the indigenous figure. And as I'm looking at these, there's one that's called Fusion. It was made in 1975. And it is taking from, I can see clearly, it's taking from the profile nature of a lot of Maya art and stele, so painted vessels, stele, and manuscripts. And this is something that's really popular, not just in the Chicano art movement, but in the art movement, like the, the Mexican muralist movement. So even though this is a contemporary work, it goes all the way back to the early 20th century. In post-revolutionary Mexico, 1910 revolution, I should say, there was a push by the Mexican government, specifically by Jose Vasconcelos and Manuel Gamio, to look at the indigenous figure as sort of like this mythical, important link between past and present Mexico. But the thing is, it was only idealizing the past, like the ancient indigenous figure, not the present indi indigenous figure. The present indigenous figure, even like for then, but even now, is still seen as very much a burden. Now, in 2021, and even a little bit earlier, there are activist groups trying to support the indigenous population in Mexico, but that is not a conversation for this one. But this sort of like romanticizing the indigenous form that even Mesa is doing here is going all the way back to 
the early 20th century. And this is in part due to the fact that you had the Mexican muralists, specifically Siqueiros, and I, I think Rivera, but more so Siqueiros, who go to LA and actually like paint murals. One being, um, it was it was covered over in white paint. It was Siqueiros uh, Tropical Americana, I think, or it might be backwards. I'm messing up on the placement, but it was covered in white paint because it like heavily criticized colonization. And they were like, yo, what the fuck? Even though Siqueiros was kind of in the right, in my opinion. But yeah, it, it's this thread. So you have Chicano artists that look up to those art, uh, those Mexican muralists, uh, specifically the big three. And that's why you have a lot of these same themes. So it's not just little thread works within the contemporary moment or the modern moment, I guess I should say. No, contemporary. Yeah. Well, it's debatable. Anyway. Um, so yeah, some of his works you can still see he's pulling from. And then there is another one. It's called it's in a similar style. It's quite colorful, actually. There's um, like bright greens, bright yellows, even some pinks. Um, it's definitely pulling into like this, I think, I don't want to say, but it's like, it's kind of like a problematic primitive of sort, but I don't know if he's necessarily primitivizing the figures. Anyway, the one, it's on page 84. It's the one below fusion. It's titled... Kuikuro Jaqui flutes. And these indigenous figures, they appear to be modern or contemporary indigenous figures, living indigenous figures that he may have seen or perhaps was aware of. Maybe it's coming from his imagination, but they're modeled to look like actual people rather than the flat stele of, well, in this case, Maya, because he's pulling from the Maya. And the only reason I know this, I'm going to plug my master's thesis here. Go read it. Mayanizing modernity. <laughs> it's on the UH library system. Actually, I think you can find it on any OneSearch library. But I do talk about that a lot, but it's geared into the post-Mexican revolution. Um, but in this work, they are sort of like in ceremonial wear and they have these large flutes and there's all these different like forms going on that are reminiscent of like the Aztec codices, the Maya codices, and it's sort of like blending this all together, it looks like. And the essay that in the essay France sort of just kind of like just like it's just pre-Columbian um, inspired. But I think it is our goal to go deeper than that. And this one in particular is from the Brazil area, which is quite different culturally than what you would see in Mesoamerica, which is like ancient Mexico like a specific region in ancient Mexico and like Central America. And yeah, so this sort of blending of like just general pre-Columbian spirituality and culture, but also in the present moment, a weird sort of thread. And these bright, they're actually, they are quite beautiful, like aesthetically. Although if you are writing an essay, don't say that it's beautiful. I know that you just can't say it in an essay. I don't know. I, I think it's dumb, but it's, putting your own take on it. Granted, this is a podcast and I can. So they are quite aesthetically pleasing. There's lots of layering happening within both. On the fusion painting, there are these like animal forms, kind of looks like he's pulling at a jaguar, but it's a little bit hard to tell just because the image is so small. And if I zoom in on my digital catalog, um, courtesy of one of my classmates. Thank you so much. It was, um, I used this for an essay last semester. It sort of degrades the image. And I, I think that's just because my screen is really small, <laughs> but lots of pre-Columbian forms, motifs. And then you go down to the one below, which is the Cuicuro. And there's like these bright circles. There's lots of turquoise within the piece, but there's also, it's like very much like contrasted with the earth tones, not just of the person, of the people's skin tone, but just of the earth and the ground. So it, it's blending like these bright ass colors with natural, natural palettes, but it could just be the print. So keep that in mind too. All right, so I'm going to jump ahead, not just in the, well, mainly in the catalog um, because they, all the essays sort of tackle a different theme within the exhibition. And I wanna jump to conceptual art in queer Chicano. Chicana art. 
Um, this essay is called Be Easy But Look Hard, Conceptual Currents in Queer Chicano, Chicana Art by Julia Bryan Wilson. And I'm going to pull a couple quotes. So what I'm saying is from is directly from the essay. So, quote, in this essay, I examine how queer Chicano Chicana art consists in art, oh, sorry, queer Chicano Chicana Chicano artists in Southern California in the 1970s invented their own language of conceptualism, using it as a flexible resource to articulate desires, to rewrite histories, to address new audiences, and to critique structures of racism, classism, and sexuality, end quote. A super powerful statement right there. So she's resituating queer Chicano Chicana art in art history and how it is its own. And I'm going to jump ahead. Oh, she does talk about how like what she's doing is sort of looking at early Chicano or early queer conceptual Chicano Chicana art and like later. So it's like this bridge between two generations, like what's happening. And then she talks about how a lot of it is believed to have been of course begun by like Marcel Duchamp and John Cage and she's like that's not the case this isn't this while they did that this is not like entirely important to this group yeah she says the usual story goes as follows building on strategies pioneered by earlier figures in the 20th century such as Marcel Duchamp and John Cage who claimed for the status of art everyday items such as a urinal or a handful of minutes of silence Artists around the globe in the mid to late 1960s broke free of the confines of fine object making, nominating instead words, gesture, maps, and grids of numbers, end quote. And then she actually quotes Adrian Piper, who wrote, In those days, conceptual art was a white macho enclave, a fun house refraction of the Euro-ethnic equation of intellect with masculinity, end quote super important that we are talking well not just us but that this author is talking about queer chicano chicano art because it's obviously not just for straight white men it is for everybody yes and it's it it's really important that queer artists and that artists of color are taking well not taking advantage that they're saying we can do this too um, like I said earlier it's something that the museum just sort of relegated to only a certain select few individuals within the art world. Um, and I think a good example of this is Oscar does a mural at MoCA LA, I think it was. And basically the idea, it, it is a conceptual piece. They spray paint on the side of the museum and it's sort of like this fuck you to the museum in the, well, the museum scene in general, but they're taking it out specifically on MoCA LA because the director at the time said that there were no great artists to come from that. They were, didn't have, I'm, I'm very much paraphrasing here because it's been a while since I read that specific quote. It's in a completely different essay um, that these artists were not intelligent enough to create conceptual works, basically. And that they're all from the ghetto and that they are just hoodlums sort of deal. And it was super racist, super problematic. And Asko was like, literally, fuck you. And it's not just them, but the only reason why I'm pulling from them is because I, I, I did an essay on one of their works for my class last semester. So yes, so conceptual art is very poignant for this for this group of, of artists because they're saying, fuck you, we are intelligent, we can make our own conceptual art and it's gonna be better and it's gonna be different. And oh, actually I'm scrolling down through the article and it's just spray paint, LACMA, sorry, not Mocha LA, LACMA, um, Los Angeles County Museum of Art. So yes, that is why this is so important. And Mesa does, uh, he is involved in this. I'm gonna, I am gonna jump ahead to his later works. I'm gonna circle back to the Guzman essay and I'm gonna pause really quick. All right, I have Guzman's essay pulled up between action and abstraction. It's on page 303 of the exhibition catalog. So he begins with a quote by John Rishi and Avital Ronel, but I'm not gonna read them. Um, and then his own essay starts, quote, After this, his terminal diagnosis of AIDS, the young queer Chicano artist Mundo Mesa turned to abstraction, producing large-scale canvases in black, white, and gray. 
with forms reminiscent of cubism, sometimes mixed with figuration. This transition in his art practice raises the question, was Mesa's battle with AIDS his aesthetic incitement to abstraction? And I'm going to jump ahead. This essay opens with questions of art, AIDS, and abstraction in order to uh, in order to meditate following Mesa on how these topics relate to Latina, Latino culture, produ cultural production emerging from Los Angeles in the 1980s and early 90s. Mesa's abstraction work provides a productive entry point into this juncture. A lot of the body of the essay talks about how many queer artists, not just queer Chicano artists, were really trying to fight the stigma of AIDS and how it was more than a virus, and that's actually one of the, the titles of the subsections in his essay, and all of the different um, magazines, well, zines, actually, not magazines, and little cards that were made to sort of fight the stigma, but also, at the same time, spread awareness, it seems. Yeah, and he talks about, like, the this sort of, the protests, of course, the people that are dying, and, of course, since it's a, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a smaller demographic of individuals. The percentages of people that are affected are much greater. And ultimately, Guzman concludes that for Mesa, abstraction provided a new visual vocabulary to understand how the body living with AIDS, yet approaching its um, finitude, expands outside of certain epistemo epistemological frameworks. And that is a quote that I pulled from page 313. I do want to jump into a quick visual analysis of some of his later abstract works and ones that also included um, figuration, even though it was in the black, while it was still in the black and white palette. So one of the large works of his that was on view at, or in the exhibition, and it was actually one of the first works that you would see coming into Lawndale, I believe. There's like this little hall when you enter and I think they had like some of the zines, maybe. I'm trying to remember. Like I said, it's been a while since I saw this exhibition. But when you come into the main gallery, this was like huge, quite literally, and it was really like one of the first works that you would see. Um, so it's called Untitled Abstraction from 1983. The acrylic painting is 70 by 109 inches or 182.9 by 276.9 centimeters. And from it's from the Mesa family collection. So it's a private collection, which means it probably is not on view frequently, which is quite significant when you're talking about any artist. So the work itself, the large horizontal black and white work is composed of abstracted geometric shapes um, it's always difficult to create a visual analysis for abstract works, in my opinion, but I will do my best. So the central point on the canvas is a black curved line that looks like a horizontal letter S. The curved line is situated within black, gray, and white squares and rectangles that seemingly fold into one another. They aren't fully solid, but they aren't flat either. It almost looks like an optical illusion, as if you were to combine an MC Escher with an Oiticica. And lastly, in the top right of the canvas, there is a swirl with form which seems to balance out the curve of the S-like line. So definitely playing with um, optics and, of course, gradients of color. Um, but yeah, I, there, I couldn't find really anything on this work, but it was so striking to me just because it is one of the first ones that you would see when you walked into the main gallery. And the flow of it is, I don't know, you could sit there and stare at it for quite some time. And it's, it's quite an interesting work to look at. Um, I will see if I can include an image of it in the Instagram post. Um, and then there were quite a few of his works in the exhibition, which absolutely makes sense considering he is the axis for the idea of the, of the exhibition. And some of them were figurative black and white paintings. Others were colored figurative paintings. Um, I think the colored ones were watercolor. And I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, they were self-portraits or portraits of other queer men. And a lot of the figurative paintings are of the male body. So I think it's an interesting way to look at the male body because we're seeing it from um, a queer man's point of view instead of like we would normally see like the... The male body is like this 
from, well, in art history, the ideal, they're obviously idealized, both male and female bodies, but typically the ones that are sex, bodies that are sexualized are the female nude body. So it's interesting to see that this is happening to the queer male body and it's by a queer male artist. So I think that's in a way kind of wholesome. <laughs> um, anyway, but one of my favorite paintings of Mundo's shown, uh, Mundo's work shown in the exhibition was Merman with Mandolin. It was by, in 1984. And it's also a black and white acrylic on canvas. I'm not particularly sure why this one stuck out to me other than the fact that I really love mythical creatures. And usually when we see a mer person, it's a mermaid with hypersexualized gigantic breast. Um, and like this tidy, unrealistic waist. I'm sure we can all think of the little mermaid. Um, but I think it's really neat to look at something like that. And in Mundo's painting, the male's figure the male figures, torso and arms are incredibly muscular. So they're very, very um, idealized. And um, yes, and the large tail seems to reiterate the shape of the merman's abdominal muscles. So he sort of like repeats this, like the, like the scale on the tail, but they're sort of similar to like the six pack. That's not quite a six pack. It's like humongous, like muscle, muscle, muscle everywhere. Um, so it, it's, it's a neat way to look at to look at uh, the male body. And just like the, I always appreciate when we get to see like the female body portrayed by a female artist because it's, it's just different than what we typically see in the art historical canon. And I'm realizing this episode is really freaking long <laughs> and I am going to stop there for this week. And next week, I'm going to do part two of Axis Mundo, where I will talk about some of the other artists. And yeah, so I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful week. Um, if you aren't already, make sure you subscribe to whatever podcast platform you're listening on for this pod wonderful podcast, Artwatch Podcast. Thank you so much for supporting. Follow on Instagram and Twitter and buy some merch subscribe something um if you can leave a review on whatever um podcast platform you listen on i would greatly greatly appreciate it as the more reviews i have the more i'll get bumped up on um i think it's apple podcasts and um i believe google has as well i think spotify has ratings but whatever podcast platform you're listening to go ahead and shoot me a rating. I would so much appreciate it. If you have any questions or you want me to go into um, a little bit more detail on some of the works of Mundos that I covered today, because I know I, I ended up, I, I wrapped it up pretty quickly towards the end because I was getting well over my time. Um, just email me. My email is artwatchpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to become a patron, please do. Patreon.com slash artwatchpodcast. All right. I hope you all have a wonderful week. I know I said that already. And I hope you enjoy the new intro and outro music that I have. So happy summer. <laughs>